Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we are talking about satanic panic, which in addition to being fun to say, I think is a really interesting topic. And partially because there are a few cases that we want to discuss, but we kind of can't talk about them until we talk about satanic panic, because otherwise I think it's a little bit harder to understand, like, how did these people get convicted? (laughs) Why would anybody think that they did the thing? Because without seeing this and seeing where everybody was and the absurdity of it, in my opinion, uh, I don't think it makes sense. For sure. Yeah. I heard the term satanic panic a lot when I was growing up. And my mom watched true crime stuff. My dad watched horror movies, all the things. But like I'd heard satanic panic, but I don't think I really understood what it meant until I had my sociology classes in undergrad. And that's when I kind of learned more about the mechanics of it. And it's a lot more insidious than we thought, like in my opinion, at least. I don't think people always mean to do the things they do, but the like the othering feels purposeful now as a way of keeping the status quo. Yeah, I heard about it. I feel like I touched on it in high school and also in the horror genre in general. If you like movies like The Exorcist, you've researched it in some fashion and saw an article or two saying how it might have led to some of satanic panic and like what happened because people were so scared of things like that. So started there. And then also there was a movie a couple years ago called Satanic Panic. It's actually hilarious because that came out. A lot of people started talking about it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, I feel like Satanic Panic coined well, coined well. So before we start talking about the structure of what the Satanic Panic was and the mechanism by which it was spread, let's just ever so briefly talk about what it actually was, is. Generally, there was a commonly held belief that there were a multitude of Satanists who were in league with one another, right? So they're working together, but also are not physically always together, who are committing atrocious crimes most of the time against children or vulnerable populations. There is thoughts that they're sacrificing animals and all of this in service to the devil. Crazy. (laughs) Wow. Right? (laughs) Like, it's a hard, like, leap for me to get to. But we're going to talk about how this belief became a widely held, just kind of like common thread of like, well, yeah, this happens in the world. And we're going to talk about like, what is this? How did it get here? How do we talk about it? How do we describe it? The first part to mention is that the satanic panic is a moral panic. And let's talk a little bit about what that is. (laughs) The term moral panic was coined by a British sociologist named Stanley Cowen. But from what I understood when researching, a lot of people look to Jeffrey Victor's description of what a moral panic is. And he says it's a form of collective behavior characterized by a sudden increased concern and hostility in a significant segment of society in reaction to widespread beliefs about a newly perceived threat from moral deviance. And we're going to break that down and and talk about what that means. So the conceptualization of moral panics in America was wrangled in a way by Good and Yehuda, who theorize there's five different elements. But one thing to keep in mind is that these beliefs are largely disseminated by mass media. So these five elements are volatility, hostility, measurable concern, consensus, 
And the last is disproportionality. And as we talk about this, to me, the most recent version of a moral panic is QAnon. Yeah, for sure. QAnon to me is like satanic panic 2.0, also in the belief. But so volatility is described as a sudden onset of concern or outrage about a newly perceived threat from people who are considered to be moral deviants. So I think what's interesting there is newly perceived threat. Like all of a sudden you're waking up and going, oh, my God, I'm so worried that a new bunch of cats moved into the neighborhood and they're surely going to steal my jam. Hostility is referenced in relation to the way in which the moral deviants are regarded. It's not just that people don't like them. It's a visceral reaction. Yeah. And even in like the framing of these words, right, like we're using the word deviant, which feels like like a really strong way to describe somebody. It's very negative. It's very negative. And we'll talk about it in a moment, too. But deviant, it just means not normal. Right. And normal is socially constructed. So. You're just not following social norms. And that feels like a really strong word for you don't follow social norms, like at least the way it feels when you say it. Yeah, it's not what you think about when you say the word deviant. You mean it in like a strong way, not just that they're different. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever characterized somebody as a deviant because you're not 83. I'm not 83. These deviants, you know, like that's I mean, I I am a deviant. I like the phrase, you know, like I would call myself that. Yeah, I I feel a shirt coming on. Are you feeling a shirt? I am a deviant. Like, I'm not a scientist, but I am a deviant. I love that for us. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so continuing on. The concern or outrage must be something that can be concretely measured or, like, quantified. So they have to be able to poll people and go, like, do you not like these cats because they're going to steal jam? And people are like, yes, yes, I do. I don't. Right? Like, it can't just be the vibe in the room. So next is... There must be a general consensus that the threat is both factual and serious. It's not just that like 2% of the population thinks that cats are going to steal jam. It has to be that a significant portion of the population is like cats steal jam and they're going to steal our jam. Stealing jam has been such a, a prevalent theme in our podcast that I just feel like it's important. And mittens. It's the biggest crime. It is the biggest crime that we talk about is a jam thief. Also another t-shirt. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're just full of it. So last, there has to be a disproportionate either number of deviants to do the thing that people are worried about. People are like, cats are coming out everywhere and stealing this jam. But like, there's two cats. The other part is that maybe there are deviants, but do they even do that action? Is that concern even relevant? So for example, they're freaking out that cats are going to steal jam, but cats don't even like jam. No cats like jam. Everyone knows that cats can't digest jams. They like jellies only. And so <laughs> and you have to be able to measure that, to be able to say, like, this isn't a thing, right? Like, you're saying all cats are going to steal jam, and we've got hundreds of cats coming in to steal the jam, but it's not happening. So, like, just, like, the briefest of recaps with our jam. The neighbors are freaking out because cats moved into the neighborhood and they are very concerned they're going to steal the jam and they feel visceral about it. They now hate these cats because they're going to steal their jam. If you were to poll the neighborhood, you could easily see who does and doesn't believe and that people truly believe that the cats will steal the jam and it's a lot of them. Right. And that the news is also talking about how other neighborhoods have had their jam stolen by the cats. Yes, exactly. And last part, we find out cats can't even digest jam. 
there's only two cats and those cats can't even digest jam. So there's this disproportionate, right? There's a disconnect between what is reality. So moral panics are, are incredibly dangerous. Like I, we, we say in jest here with our, our cats that are jams, right? But they can be used to oppress marginalized populations and they can be used to further misconceptions about who is or is not dangerous, right? Like we look at a person and we go, you look different, therefore, which is bullshit, right? Like, you know, by looking at somebody, you can't tell a damn thing about them other than how they look. <laughs> right. But in addition to oppression, there can be whole movements to eradicate those deviants from society, whether it's on purpose or not. When you label someone negatively a deviant rather than reclaiming a word, right? That visceral response, it's often met with violence because you feel justified in your actions against those deviants because you see this as a real problem. Yeah. Yeah. And historically, we can see this in a number of different ways. What Salem witch trials is one good example that everyone's heard of. There's also Pizzagate from QAnon, where a guy went into a pizza place with a loaded gun demanding that he be shown the basement where the kids were being kept. Yep. And he thought he was there to save children. Like he thought he was doing a good, righteous thing. But what he was actually doing was going into a restaurant filled with people, scaring the hell out of them. So the interesting part about it is, is that so the most salient behavior that can be observed from moral panics is the widespread communication of rumors and conjectures about the threat. Because that's what a moral panic is, right? It's the communication of it that makes it the thing. So when you think about it that way, if you are scared the cats are going to steal your jam, you might not say anything. But if you believe that they are most certainly going to do that, that's what's going to push you to take action as opposed to just kind of sitting with it. So oftentimes there's an exaggeration of the claims against the deviants. It's not just that like the cats might sometimes consider stealing the jam. It's that all cats will still jam. It is what they do. And by their very nature, that's what they'll do. So when researchers are looking at moral panics, what they focus on is they focus on the people making the claims. Because that's how you identify what the issue is, because it's not in the perceived behavior. It's in what people believe is the newly perceived threat. And if you even think about it like this, like what someone says about you says more about them than you. It's that, but bigger. Yeah. So typically when people are talking about moral outrage and they have claims in a moral panic sense, they have stereotypes of the deviants and they have descriptions of the harms caused by the deviants. It's how you push it. It's all cats steal jam and they'll steal your jam too. And then you'll be out of jam. Never a PBJ again. We mentioned it before, but deviance is deviance from social norms and social norms are constructed and they vary based on where you are. And so because of that, deviance itself is socially constructed and it's socially regulated in that there's stigmas for if you step out of line. And at first it's like people might look at you funny or perhaps they'll consider you a deviant. So how are moral panics spread? Urban legends are one of the vehicles for the spread of moral panic. Typically, legends are a type of rumor that is communicated and spread among mass media. And we've talked about that, right? Like that urban legends are normally a rumor that was my friend's sister's brother's wife saw this once and then it gets something added every time. It's like a game of telephone, right? So these are considered urban or contemporary legends. And that feels really strange to me because when we're talking about it in this context, it seems 
like misplaced because when we talk about urban legends, we're talking about monsters and like heinously violent people and cryptids and stuff like that. We're not talking about yeah people who are considered deviants. It doesn't seem like it rises to that level. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's on the same playing field, right? Yeah, exactly. It feels like it's just two different sports. Yeah. So contemporary legends portray the shared anxieties of what is considered to be a rising threat through commonly used motifs. So a lot of the articles that we reviewed in anticipation of doing this episode were published in the late 90s. But they would also consider things like social media as another layer of how these legends are spread. Think about it, though, like half the stuff you talk about now, you saw it on a Facebook feed or an Instagram feed or TikTok, right? Love a TikTok. And then you share it and then your friend shares it and what it reaches millions of people. On a side note, me, a tangent, I would never. So I have a little bedtime ritual. And part of it is watching TikToks, but I've learned that I cannot open the TikToks that Amanda sends me because she only sends me terrifying (laughs) TikToks or dogs. And I don't know which it will be. So I know that if it's like my bedtime TikToking that I can't open them because I will get scared and then close them and then I will forget to rewatch like watch the rest of it. So I've had to be like, okay, those are early evening TikToks, not bedtime TikToks. The funny thing is, is I send them to you at bedtime. That's my bedtime routine. I know you do. (laughs) I know. I know. True crime I can do. I say that like, but like yesterday having like, I say that, but like when we are doing like research for a really gruesome case, like the one we have coming in a few weeks. Yeah. My face was tense. Like I couldn't fall asleep because my entire face was tense and I couldn't untense it i had to put like a heating pad on my face just to be like please calm down yeah please calm down sometimes i'll watch like a cartoon filler just to like flip my brain because then i started doing namus research which everything leads to me going onto namus and searching for things that's your first problem (laughs) i know it's always where i go no no it's bad but yeah that is my feed in general it's just like terrifying thing dog doing something cute terrifying thing dog training my most recent favorite one that you showed me though was the dog who had a dog who had a dog who had a dog who had a dog the lady that got her dog a dog yes i love her (laughs) yeah and her dog's dog a dog and then her dog's dog's dog a dog and then her dog's dog's dog a dog (laughs) yeah we got eight dogs in it was wonderful it was a lot and i'm not even gonna try to say that because i'd mess it on up So non-localized legends are persistent and retold. They are told as they were fact. So instead of going, I heard this once, it's this happened to so-and-so. So that's much different. So instead of going, once I heard there's a neighborhood overrun with jam (laughs) thieving cats. It's in Baltimore. I'm looking at buying a house there, but I'm really worried because Lindsay's neighbor was once burglarized and the cat stole all of her jam. And I'm worried that if I were to move to Baltimore, that the cats that are overrunning the neighborhoods are going to break into my house and steal my jam. We do have a feral cat in the neighborhood. It lives in a drain pipe behind my house, at least part time. So I've named it Pennywise. That's one. I just feel like I should tell you that there is a wild cat. Okay. I will be taking Pennywise in clearly. Pennywise is very fluffy, very disheveled and wants no part of me. I'm like, here, kitty, kitty. And it's like, fuck you. And like goes into like the drain pipe. (laughs) I love him already. So back to what I was saying. Instead of going, 
I heard about this. It's like, I know a person that had this happen. And then you're like, well, if she knew someone and I trust her, then this is real. Exactly. And then that's how it just gets carried away. And it's like, I have no idea. I thought I, I thought it was Lindsay's neighbor. But for all I know, it could have been, you know, a fake article or something that was shared. And now I just made it worse. Yeah, it gets more concerning the more reputable the source. And then if it gets carried away enough, that something horrible is going to happen to these cats, even though they've done nothing wrong. Yeah. And all this was because somebody didn't like cats and they liked their jam too damn much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the same with pit bulls. My sweet baby moo. Or as my niece would say, Mew Mew. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people will go on about different things that they've heard. And then unfortunately, when you do some of the fact checking, it's not just pit bulls that get into those situations. It's a lot of different dogs. But what makes it to the news? Or you hear something and you've got that bucket in your head that's ready to be filled with facts that support that theory, right? So when you hear about a dog that's violent, when you hear that it's a pit bull, you're like proof that pit bulls are violent, right? But if you hear about another dog, you might you might pause first and go, Oh, well, is that true? How much do I trust this source? Exactly. Exactly. So I know we just went on it again, but we did talk about this exact thing with Bunny Man. The use of pseudo facts and witnesses is likely a component in how believable the legend is. So it continues on. Yeah. So like if you're saying somebody's like a person's name, it feels real. Or you're saying it's like this thing definitely happened. Yeah. And just when you have like a, an odd sounding name, especially not just like the most common of names. It's like an odd name that you don't hear very frequently. You're like, okay, yeah, that person, that sounds believable. That's right. Yeah. Like if someone says John Smith, you're like, okay. But if they're like Amanda Mednansky and Lindsay Charlick, they sound not run of the mill enough. They sound weird. I love my name. But to me more, the fact that it's not just like Bob Boberson, it sounds like a real person because... <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yes. It sounds like a real person. Yeah, for sure. So urban legends that we've talked about in the past, like Bunny Man, can be harmless if the deviant is a fictional character. But when the deviant is a specific individual or individuals, the result can be violent, oppressive, and overall dangerous. So when we're looking at moral panics, again, we're looking at the claim makers themselves and going, well, why are they saying this? And so when you're thinking about that, you want to ask, what's the social status of the claim makers? What's their interest in this? Like, are they better off? Whether it's with wealth, prestige, respect, some other privilege? And what's their relative social authority and power? Right. Like, is this a mechanism for oppression? And so there's thought to be three different types of ways in which moral panics are engineered. And then they're grassroots, elite engineer and interest group. And they're largely what their names are. The grassroots driven moral panics suggest that at the same time, multiple people were like, wait a second, these cats are going to come for our fucking jam. And that all together they realized this and they worried about it. And the moral panic grew from there. With elite engineered, it's that someone in power who will benefit from this moral panic drives the believing class of people to have this belief and to push it forward. So they might be the original claim makers, but they aren't the ending claim makers. They're the people who like kind of get the ball rolling. So going back to our example, perhaps beloved dogs are like, 
if there are more cats here, we are going to have to share our love and attention. And we don't want to do this. Like we are HBICs right now. We don't want we don't want cats. We want a dog only neighborhood. So they get their owners riled up about cats stealing jam. And then their owners go forward and are like, no, the cats are going to steal the jam because then it's with them. Right. And the last is interest group based. So say there are a group of neighbors that are allergic to cats. And so they're like, did you know that cats steal jam? And they maybe aren't trying to keep the cats out of the neighborhood because of their allergy, but it certainly does benefit them for there to not be cats. So there's typically like a secondary benefit, although that might not be the primary motive, which is I feel like that's a dicier one and kind of harder to like demonize, not demonize. Moral panics, I would dare to say, are just categorically bad because there is a disproportionality in facts and reality. So the important thing to keep in mind, too, is that when you're thinking of interest group, it is kind of lumped into this like this method of moral panics is that the group will push oppression for competing ideologies. So it's not even just that the people with the allergies who have begun to say the cats will still jam are saying cats will still jam. They're also like, what's wrong with you if you don't think that too? Which specifically dangerous when you start going, I'm going to attack you on a personal level because we have competing ideologies where I benefit from this ideology continuing forward. Yeah. So satanic panic is a moral panic. We're going to get into satanic panic a little bit more. And we're going to start with, obviously, the first part of that, which you got to do. And that is Satanism. (laughs) Woo! As a side note, something that we found, if you go to Satanism.com, it purely talks about crypto and NFTs, (laughs) which feels fitting. Like it's it's so random. It takes you to another website. But if you type in Satanism.com, that's what happens. So Satanism is actually pretty young compared to other religions, which like seems weird, right? Like you would feel like it would be pretty old, but it's really not. There are several authors tied to the history of Satanism, and one is Anton LaVey, and he's the founder of the Church of Satan. He also wrote the Satanic Bible and Satanic Rituals. Another one is Aleister Crowley, and they were an eclectic pagan and did not acknowledge Christianity's devil. Interesting, right? Especially like when you think like just a broad stroke, like I know you and I know what it is. But like when you think of the word, you're like, interesting. You know, and also like when I hear the word Crowley, it's so often associated with a demon. I find it funny, especially I don't know if you watch Supernatural, but if you watch Supernatural, like Crowley is a demon and he works in hell. So depictions of him as a Satanist are a result of his sense of humor and salacious press, which is funny. So Dennis Wheatley was another author, and he was not a believer in the occult, but did write The Satanist, They Used Dark Forces, and To the Devil a Daughter. He also wrote The Devil Rides Out, which was published in 1934, and is credited with introducing French Satanism to both America and Britain. That's not that old at all. Yeah. Wheatley created the idea of evil magicians who gather in covens. That also seems like a very old thing. It does. I think because we have seen it so often in fiction of older times, we assume that it is an old idea. Wheatley also embodied Crowley as a character in one of his books and said he died during a failed invocation. So some people claim that they are completing satanic practices 
in their violent crimes. And knowing more about it, they're most likely not. So the Church of Satan forbids harmful rituals, which a lot of people still don't know that. Like a lot of people still have that fear that they're sacrificing things and doing horrible things to children. And it's just not true. If you have a moment, I would thoroughly suggest going to churchofsatan.com. I know I was surprised by some of what was there. I was not surprised by some other parts. I certainly wasn't expecting it to be like. And then we drink goat's blood on Tuesdays. But like, it's a lot more like be present in your life. Do not let Sky Daddy dictate you into morals that are not in line with your morality. That's to me, that's kind of how I took parts of it. There's other parts of it that's like, take no shit, right? And I'm like, eh, calm down, calm down. Like, simmer yourself. Yeah, I think that's a good way to summarize a lot of it, though. I think that's fair. Yeah. When I said that they forbid harmful rituals, LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan, specifically dispelled this in his 11 satanic rules of the earth. And two of the rules being, do not harm little children. And the second one, do not kill non-human animals unless you are attacked or for your food. Checks out to me. <laughs> check and check, right? Like those are good things. And the other the other rules also, they talk about like when you can kind of hurt someone like and it's not for sacrifice. It's like defending yourself or if they like yeah. start some shit. Yeah. But one of the interesting things, too, was they did. It's like we believe in vengeance. And I was like, hmm, OK, of certainly a vibe. I believe in vengeance. Our Pat's Batman. <laughs> You're welcome. When people talk about satanic cults, some believe that Satan was actually an evil influence. For others, though, it was a shorthanded way to describe cults. People often mix all occult history with Satanism. Per the Church of Satan's website, to us, Satan is the symbol that best suits the nature of we people who feel no battles raging between our thoughts and feelings. We who do not embrace the concept of a soul imprisoned in a body. Seems fair so far to me. Right? We Satanists are thus our own gods, and as beneficent deities, we can offer love to those who deserve it and deliver our wrath within reasonable limits upon those who seek to cause us or that which we cherish harm. Okay, okay. Like, we didn't leave it. We, like, obviously, this isn't like an in-depth look at every part of Satanism. But like, no, it feels not fucking terrible. Certainly not anything to panic about. Right, right. Especially when, you know, they're they only have 11 rules and two of them are do not harm little children and do not kill non-human animals unless you're attacked or for food. Okay. Okay. We're not mad about it. When especially when people say Satanists are sacrificing children and animals and then in their rules, it's like, please do not do that. Yeah, like that. I think that's what it is. The first thing you hear about like satanic or occult ish things is they did animal sacrifices. And it's like, well, then they're not Satanists. Exactly. You already got the facts wrong. Yeah. Yeah. We're now going to start a talk about what, 7,000 minutes into our episode, we're going to start talking about satanic panic. So it started in the late 70s and went through the early 90s. But I would venture that maybe it didn't go away, that maybe it teetered out to a acceptable amount because i think today if you were to say to someone there's a series of like dead animals in the woods a child has gone missing i think they would still go there and i think for that reason to me it's not dead well i don't know if it's just me or where i was raised but that was like a thing that people our parents would say right like 
oh, Satanists have done that. Or they must be into Satan if they would do that. And then when you look at it, you're like, wait, no. But they were raised during that. I could see people of our parents' generations saying that. My particular rearing, like there was like a book of like demonology in my dad's office because he wrote horror comics, right? So like that wasn't in our lexicon, if you will, of like, this is what we're worried about. My mom was much more worried about like me sitting in the front seat because of an airbag, because that was on Dateline, or my hair going into a jacuzzi jet because that was on like 60 Minutes. Or a 2020 episode <laughs> where, like, a kid was abducted when they were outside playing. So my mom was like, if you walk there, you're going to end up dead in a gutter. And I was nine. So, like, there were concerns, but I don't think Satan was one of them. And so the satanic panic, broadly, the concern was that there was a network of well-connected Satanists committing atrocious crimes against children in service to the devil. And so we mentioned it earlier at the top of the episode, like a brief snapshot of what it is, and we're going to get to into it more. But like, even just on the outset, to me, that sounds bananas. And I find it fascinating that so many people were like, yup, sounds good to me. It was an easy boogeyman, though, right? Like it was easy to have something to just blame. Exactly. So the satanic panic happened late 70s, right? And then dash question mark right to the end. And I would say that American culture was ripe for this particular concern. And we're going to talk about a few different things. But the first is the anti-rock movement. So it's not surprising, right? Like we've, we've, we've all heard through some layer, right, about how people had a problem with rock and roll when it began. So in May of 1985, on an episode of 2020, they had a segment called The Devil Worshippers. The person who's hosting this particular segment is talking about Satanism's alleged crimes, people who are doing this. And he says, growing subculture that mixes heavy metal music with drugs and the occult, before stating that there is evidence from multiple crime scenes that suggests the link between the occult rituals and heavy metal music. The host then goes on to talk to a cop about the frequency of finding heavy metal music indicators at scenes of alleged crimes where there's also a devil worship component. And the officer's just like 35 to 40 percent. And <laughs> like, first off, good for you. You know what I mean? Like, say it with confidence because he's just shooting from the hip. We know damn well now, 2022, that there is fucking fuck all of a collection of aggregated data on variables of crime scenes. We know that now. So you're telling me 1985, two years before I was born, this random ass cop was like 35 to 40 percent and was right. Nothing will make me believe this. Like nothing. <laughs> I like the way that he said it, though. Finding heavy metal music indicators at scenes like <laughs> like a band T-shirt. Like, is that what that is? <laughs> Did they? No, I was thinking I was thinking of like a vinyl. Like, each time they put, like, Ozzy's vinyl on top of a body. <laughs> oh, like, they're like, I murdered, and here is a is a hot track for you to listen to as you... It's like their calling card. <laughs> yeah, like, here you go. Here is a... Oh, no, to me, it's a band tee. Because, like, heavy metal music indicators. Like, what does that mean? Is that posters? That makes more sense. I'm saying just like ridiculous, like the reenactment. The guy like leaves the vinyl on the body and walks away. I feel like the 90s equivalent of that is like here is like I say 90s, late 90s, early 2000s is a pirated mixtape placed next to the body by a person whose bangs are severely parted. Mm -hmm. Where you run out of room 
Are you getting the whole, yeah. Yeah, emo bangs with a bow on the side. Yeah. Oh, uh, the biggest bow and teased. And so much eyeliner that later it's just bad. Like nothing's good. Nothing's working right. It's not great. It's just a lot of smudges. I can't wait to post those pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I would love for us to have like a like a scene moment. You know what I mean? Like there's a girl on TikTok who does it, who's like, everything is that. And somebody who was like, do you remember your random awkward phase where you thought that was cute? And I was like, oh, no. And then she's like doing things that I would do, like writing the word rawr, R-A-W-R. And I'm like, oh, that was me. Anyway. You know what? Everything was better then. Let's just say that. It was it. Was everything better? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It was. I don't think everything was better, but I did have less responsibilities in life. And that just felt good. Concert every night. Bullet belt. Bullet belt, she says. Bullet belt. No, I didn't. I didn't. Solid. You didn't have a bullet belt? I, yeah. Were you seen? <laughs> Were you seen? Were you seen? <laughs> this bitch. Okay. Okay. <laughs> rude i feel attacked right now uh one can i just tell you it was my most prized possession but keep in mind like i have been chunky since i was 10 and i maintain that that belts on a curvy gal when it's a tum like what's the point of that i'm not wearing a belt i'm not wearing any fucking belt but i will raise you selfies with an actual camera <laughs> and a myspace page that you curated yourself with your emo music to impress everyone else so that they knew who you were. And it had to be emo music of a local band that no one else has heard of or cared about. You had to know at first or or it had to be like the song before a band got big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was also acceptable. So anyway, we're going back to our anti-rock movement. But OK, so anti-rock activists, because that was a thing that people were, believed that the shift in popular music promoted moral decay as well as violent sex and substance abuse. So this movement, anti-rock, paralleled the satanic panic. Like, they were happening at the same time. So it, one of the things that people started to get super pressed about was they started believing that if you played records backwards, there would be satanic messages. <laughs> and like, to me, it's very reminiscent of like, did you hear that? And it's like, you drop, you just dropped a pencil. Like, there's not a ghost in the room, you idiot. It's like, they're trying to hear something. And it's like, blah, 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 blah. and it's like, oh, when I played the record backwards, it said Hail Satan. It's that kind of bullshit. So it went so far that in 1982, there was a bill proposed to the California legislator that wanted warning labels on music. If there was a backwards message glorifying Satan, they had to put it on the label. Other states started to do this as well or tried to ban these records. There was even federal legislation that was proposed, but not enacted. Wild. Wild. Luckily. It's just <laughs> so silly. That's what you're worried about. So going back a little bit, they were worried that if the record played backwards, had satanic messages, that therefore there were subliminal messages being transferred in the music. So let's talk a little bit about the occult and heavy metal. So Black Sabbath drew on the writings of both Wheatley and Crowley. And, you know, just in case you didn't know, Ozzy Osbourne was the lead singer of Black Sabbath. Everyone should know that, but just in case. Yeah. All right. Jimmy Page, lead singer of Led Zeppelin, was a Crowleyite and purchased Crowley's Scottish estate. That's dedication. 
Modern occultism groups as of the early 90s were Venom, Megadeth, Slayer, and Iron Maiden. There's probably more, yeah. but... The late 1960s and 70s also brought new horror flicks that were called Devil Pictures. Because we can't have anything nice. I mean, I liked a lot of these, but sure. So in 1968, we had The Devil Rides Out, Rosemary's Baby. In 1973, The Exorcist. In 1976, To the Devil a Daughter, The Omen. This also introduced the Antichrist and 666, which were not present in continental Satanism. The Exorcist II, The Heretic, in 1977. In 1978, Damien, Omen II. And Satan's Blood. In 1981, Evil Dead, that's a good one. Midnight Offerings. The Queen of Black Magic. Demon Rage in 1982. 1983, The Demon Murder Case. The Demons of Ludlow. In 1986, Witchboard. In 1987, Hellraiser. The Gate. The Believers. Rock and Roll Nightmare. (laughs) The only way to say rock and roll now. Yeah, how else did you say that? In 1988, The Unholy. The Black Rose. In 1990, Satan's Princess. And Demon Wind. Which does sound like Satan's fart. (laughs) Like, and these obviously aren't all of them. These are just like a casual look of like 60s, 70s, 80s, like occult films. And like what pops up. But yeah, yeah. Some major ones there. So also during this time, there's a lot of talk of cults. And one was the Hare Krishnas, the Unification Church or the Moonies, the Manson family, which I feel like it's probably the most well-known one. And Jim Jones's People's Temple. I would also argue that that last one is like equally as infamous as the Manson family because that was Jonestown. That's true. That's true. So let's move into Satanic Panic and what people thought was going on. When we talk about what alleged Satanists in that time did, it's thought to be Satanic ritual abuse. There are several studies that, when aggregated, they have the claims of what we most often heard. And it one was from Hicks in 1991, Jenkins in 1992, Nathan and Stedeker in 1995, Victor in 1991, 94, 95, and 96. And so what they summarize as typical claims for satanic ritual abuse were that, one, there are clandestine organizations that perpetrate crimes against children in service of Satan. And then there's conspiratorial networks. Some suggest that there are intergenerational families that have a practice of Satanism. Sexual abuse and torture is supposedly done to reprogram good children to become evil and to brainwash them into worshiping Satan. Sacrifice of infants, of course, who are bred for this purpose, and then parts of those infants are eaten. Also, part of this is that there were women called breeders who their sole purpose was to breed infants for sacrifice. They would kidnap kids who would run away so that they could be sacrificed. They would murder indigent people. They would engage in human trafficking, the sale of drugs, and child pornography. And these behaviors were able to be kept quiet because the Satanists were well-connected and even at high levels. When you read it out like that, it very much mirrors how we view QAnon today. It does. I've even heard the Satanism portions of it. Like, I would just say that it's Satanism rebranded to a certain extent. And so my first question is, and your first question might be too, why do people think this? Like, why do they actually believe that this was going on? And it's because hundreds, maybe thousands of psychotherapy patients said they were having recovered memories of their childhood where they were subject to ritual abuse and sexual abuse from their parents or childcare employees or Satanists generally. But generally, those first two groups were because they were Satanists. What's considered to be the first survivor account of a Satanic cult is in a book called Michelle Remembers, which was published in 1980. And it was written by Lawrence Pazder. In this book, he tells the story of his patient, Michelle Smith, and he says that she recalled being involved with a satanic cult. 
But she has these recollections after 600 hours of hypnosis to recover these memories. It's a lot. It's a lot of time. I'm going to do some quick math. Let me open a calculator and put like, let's figure out how many days that is. 600 divided by 24 is 25 days worth. That's an insane amount. Yeah. The incidents that she perhaps recalled allegedly happened in Victoria, Canada, but there are some key facts that don't add up. So first off, she mentions a specific cemetery where things were occurring. And by things, I mean there were satanic cult rituals occurring, but there were no other reports in the area of this. So it's kind of bizarre that she would be the only person that would have suffered this abuse in that area especially if it was occurring with the frequency that she was alleging. She also said that during one of the rituals, a priest cut off his finger, but there was nobody who like was around that cemetery, right? Like that like frequented that area that had their finger cut off, according to people who live there. That seems a little steep. Like, I'm just going to cut my own finger off for this ritual. No big deal. And in case you're already like, hmm, this is perhaps strange. 600 hours of hypnosis. Pastor later went on to marry Michelle. Of course. A fucking course. There's no hard number on the amount of satanic ritual abuse, accusations in the U.S. or prosecutions. And we're talking about the U.S., but this happened in other countries as well. Out of 2,272 clinical psychologists who were part of a random sample of members of the American Psychological Association, 802 therapists reported 3,000 cases where the psychologist had at least one report of satanic ritual abuse. Of the sample, 1,228 cases were of adults who had experienced satanic ritual abuse and 1,500 of children. In a national survey that had a sample of 2,912 law enforcement agencies, 1,037 social workers, and 706 district attorneys, Goodman, Quinn, Bottoms, and Schaefer found 302 respondents reported having at least one satanic ritual abuse case. That's about 10%. It's a high enough number to be concerned about. But it's not a high enough concern to assume that everything is that. Correct. Yeah. I mean, 10%. Yeah, that's a lot. And that that's a pretty big sample of people, too. Yeah. And I'd also say like 302 is also a very high number. And we'll get to why later. A publication titled The American Focus on Satanic Crime includes several accounts from claim makers. Per American Focus, Satanists are connected with murdering unbaptized infants, sexual abuse of children at daycare rape, ritual abuse of children, drug trafficking, arson, pornography, kidnapping, vandalism, church desecration, corpse theft, sexual trafficking of children, mutilation of children, dismemberment and sacrifices of humans and animals, and the death of 60,000 Americans each year. That's a lot of fucking people. That's a lot of things that they're doing. Yeah. Ted Gunderson, who was once a senior member of the L.A. office of the FBI, wrote the following about Satanists in American Focus. I can say there is a network of these people across the country who are very active. They have their own rest and relaxation farm. They are in contact with each other. It ties loosely to the drug operation. It ties to motorcycle gangs. And it goes on and on. It's a lot of accusations there. <laughs> they have their own people who specialize in surveillances and photography and in assassinations. A lot of bold claims there. 
right, they're just doing everything bad, right? Like everything in America that's bad is probably leading to them in this guy's eyes. So a couple other notes on other things he said. He was told that Satanist groups kidnap infants and young kids from an array of public places, including hospitals. Also, that he was informed that they infiltrate the Boy Scouts, Little League baseball team leadership, and have established preschools. And they also cremate bodies so that they don't have any evidence. Anytime someone is claiming a lack of evidence as proof of a conspiracy, I'm a little bit like, hmm... Depending on the thing. But like here, I feel like if we were missing thousands of children, hopefully we would know about it. Right. Like I say that, like knowing that like missing people aren't always well publicized, depending on who they are and where they are and what color their skin is, Mm -hmm. especially today. But I just feel like it's very convenient to be like, well, someone told me. And frankly, when you are a person who has a credible profession where you would know these facts, it is dangerous, reckless, and irresponsible to make public claims like this because you legitimize this bullshit. Well, it could just be me reading into it too much. But okay, so this all came out in the early 80s, 90s is like when it was like everywhere. Wasn't it like the 60s, 70s-ish when women were going to work more frequently and not being stay-at-home moms all the time? And then all of this comes up, like, if you bring your kid to a public place, the Satanists are going to grab them. Doesn't it almost seem like it's like... Like a backlash? Well, kind of like women shouldn't be leaving the house because then, right? Like, in a way, I I might be reading into it more, but... No, you're not reading into it. Let's back up, right? For a woman, before women were in the workforce, there were two different spheres. There was the private and there was the public sphere. And women existed in the private sphere, which was at home, or a place that could be carefully cultivated for them eventually, right? But first, it's at home. And then in the world outside that front door is the public sphere. And so when women began going into the public sphere more, there were bubbles. So like restrooms, restrooms in and of themselves, I could talk a lot about this, started from factories. But one of the reasons why they were sex segregated at one point was because there were fainting rooms. There were restrooms. Because women were delicate and needed a private sphere in the public sphere. It's the same reason why there were women-only train cars. Because women needed to be in a private sphere in the public sphere. I very much agree with you that it's a backlash to women being in the public sphere in a very concrete way. And perhaps this is I mean, a few decades later, right? Because women were like slowly going into the workforce, especially, I mean, during World War One and during World War Two, women were in the workforce. So it was a little bit different. But when we're looking at, I mean, I think we'd say in this way, look what happens when your children aren't watched all the time. Because like, I would say our parents were one of the first generations where women were kind of taught to be super women, right? Like, sure, you can go get a job. But you're going to do everything that women did before, too. And so this, I mean, seems to be like 80s, 90s. I was born in 87. I think you're an 88 baby, right? This is happening like right around the time that like our parent generation is having young kids. Yeah. And it's like, look what happens when you try to have it all. Yeah. I don't think it's reading into it. I think it's kind of like this is what was happening. Anytime when you can both other and say you're protecting someone, people are going to love it. it. It hits home better. Yeah. It's a, an excellent way to frame a social problem. It's like, but the children. 
Right. And they even, I mean, they specifically bring up pretty much anywhere you would take your kid, right? Like Mm -hmm. hospital, any public place. Uh, At one point, we talked about daycares, how they're infiltrating the daycares, the Boy Scouts. And we're going to talk about daycares a lot in a little bit. Uh, Sports. Could you imagine being a young mother during this time? Right. And just being like, well, if I ever leave them alone, the Satanists will get them. So it's also been suggested, just to go back to all the crazy things that Satanists were doing, (laughs) Uh, it's been suggested that Satanists were working as coroners to cover up satanic murders. They got degrees to do all the things. They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. They really put the time and effort into it. (laughs) Uh, There's fields in VICAP data entry to input symbolic artifacts that would suggest that there were ritual elements of the murders. I love that people are doing things with VICAP at all times, but I'm annoyed at this. I will say, like, I'm glad that it says symbolic artifacts and not, like, evidence of satanic rituals because, like, it's thinly veiled. But I do think that symbolic artifacts could be, is it symbolic to the killer? I'm going to, like, cross my fingers. It's not. But, like, maybe it will evolve to that one day when we stop demonizing random people for not fitting into social norms. Well, what they really should have had is... uh the heavy metal music indicators open by cap absolutely which albums did they leave what song did they pick what was on their mixtape this is unrelated uh what is what was like your number one mixtape song like what were you gonna put on there on my murder i guess yeah you're leaving you're leaving a mixtape at a murder (laughs) what are you putting like like from like emo phase or from like no anything anything i want you to give me like whatever feels right I'm not prepared. I'm not prepared. No, you know what? Just pause. You know, you think about it. We're going to think about it as we talk about other things. At the end of the episode, we'll come back to this. Oh, man, that's a lot to think about. I have a lot of mixtapes to go through in my head. And talk about satanic panic at the same time. And talk about satanic panic. My brain is going to just, as you're going to see, me speaking isn't a thing today. Okay. Another major claim maker is Lieutenant Larry Jones of Boise, Idaho who published the Cult Crime Impact Newsletter. Cult Crime Impact Newsletter. It's a lot of C's, a lot of hard C's. I feel like that's too hard to say for a newsletter guy. It's not going to flow anywhere. A common theme among claim makers is that they see the solution to satanic cults as a return to traditional values. So like, it won't happen if you just go back to tradition and do everything the way that we think you should. If you adhere to social norms, this won't be a problem because it won't exist because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Don't go to work. Don't go to work and watch your own children. Yeah. Whenever the solution is return to traditional values, I already don't believe that the thing that they're saying is a problem is a problem. No, it's just that they it's easier for them. Right. Like they benefit from that in some fashion. So, okay, again, how did we get to this being everywhere and being legitimized? Satanic cult crime accusations were all over magazines, news programs, talk shows, books, radio shows. They were everywhere. In a 1994 national study by Red Book magazine, they found that 70% of Americans believed those who alleged satanic ritual abuse were truthful. That's a giant, massive number. That's also, you know, assuming that The people who were readers of Red Book Magazine might be of a certain demographic, so that could be skewed. But 70% of any population, strange. In addition to the general population's belief in the credibility of these legends, there was also a belief in that for people who could legitimize it, right? So mental health providers believed in this. In a national survey conducted by Bottom Shaver and Goodman, 
Their sample of psychotherapists did not report a single instance where there was any actual evidence to substantiate the claims of satanic ritual abuse. And so what's weird then is that so many reported believing this and saying like, oh, well, but everyone's reporting the same thing. It must be true. Right. Does it mean that it's going to be true? Crouch and Dampus completed an analysis of eight major newspapers' coverage of satanic cult stories. And through their analysis, they found that it wasn't that the media added fuel to the fire. They just reported on how other people legitimized it. So first off, there are people who claim to be experts of being able to identify the symptoms of satanic cult crime. These people were considered either occult experts or sometimes they were called occult cops if they were law enforcement. The group that was legitimizing it was comprised of mental health professionals, clergy, and law enforcement. And Amanda mentioned it earlier, but the Salem Witch Trials, this sounds a lot like people who said they were witch finders. Yes, it does. They made a job around it. It's thought that the legends of satanic cult crime really took off when law enforcement agencies began giving those concerns more credibility. So because law enforcement took it seriously, people took it more seriously, the general public. And then because the general public took it more seriously, law enforcement did. There was passage of laws prohibiting satanic ritual abuse. And this further legitimized the accusations and legends, right? Because if it's not happening, why would you pass a law about it? Exactly. So that's like the person that you would believe, right? Like if they're making laws about it, it must be happening everywhere. It must. Surely it must be, right? So let's talk about recovered childhood memories, because that's at the crux of of this issue, right, is that people are remembering things that happened to them many years ago. Or there's also children who are saying this, but there's also a large population of adults. And so some say that childhood memories that are recovered in adulthood are commonly hidden from the victim's conscious awareness. A lot of people call this repressed memories. Others suggest that these memories are unreliable and the evidence is in the retraction of those stories, because so many people who originally said like, oh, XYZ happened to me during the satanic panic, later retracted their stories. Numerous sociological studies have shown that culture influences may shape child sexual abuse accounts. So this was everywhere in the news. So the framework for how kids described sexual abuse that might be happening to them on a regular basis may have been skewed based on this. They also may not have been abused. Either one is possible, right? So, yes, yes. There were movements that were like, believe the children. And like, for sure, a child comes to you and talks about sexual abuse. Like, your first concern should be for their well-being, right? That's like 10 out of 10. Like, no one's no one's saying not to do that. But so in the early 1990s, many of the patients that have previously recalled abuse not only retracted their memories, but they filed malpractice lawsuits against their mental health providers and hospitals because they had gotten them to believe that they had been sexually abused. The hurt they experienced and the trauma that like they invented trauma in their patients and that caused trauma. Right. And that's dangerous. Yeah. So in a study done by the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, which there's a whole foundation about it, found that of the 59 civil lawsuits filed for this nature between 1991 and 1997, 57% had recovered alleged memories of satanic ritual abuse that they later recanted. And that's wild, right? Like that's a big percentage. Yeah. More than half. Like, that's a lot. Yeah. And I would wonder how many people are out there believing things that happened to them that maybe didn't. And that fucking sucks. Or, I mean, I could very well see, like, you've gone through this terrible, awful thing. And what you see in the news is that the people who do XYZ are Satanists. So you think that if it happens to you, it has to be by a Satanist. 
it can't be by someone who's close to you. It can't be by right just a normal person because normal people don't do this. That's part of it, right? Is that no one wants to think that an average person can do these horrible fucking things. But it's not true. Yeah. Typically, it's not the publicly known Satanist leaders who are tied to the satanic cult crimes. It's actually teenagers, which we're going to talk about in the future. But there's some crazy cases. The terms occult and Satanism are used interchangeably, which isn't really fair no, to anyone. The occult can encompass so much. So the FBI's Investigator's Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse. It was published in January of 1992. It was written by Supervisory Special Agent Kenneth V. Lanning of the Behavioral Science Unit. He mentions having seen many awful things, so ritual child abuse did not seem unbelievable at first. So in the publication, he said, the very reason many experts cite for believing these allegations In example, many victims who never met each other reporting the same events is the primary reason I began to question at least some of these allegations. Lanning describes the evolution of child victimization and how it's been approached in the past. The satanic panic is a backslide into cut and dry stranger danger. I can kind of see that, but still. Yeah. Well, again, it's pointing out like, don't go near strangers, like not a bad lesson, but it's also teaching children that it's only strangers that can hurt them in that way. So if it's only strangers that hurt you, if a person who you know is doing something that feels wrong, then what does that mean? Because only strangers are dangerous, right? Like that, it's it's like the omission of what it says, right? Especially for a kid. Yeah, that mentality. Lanning also notes that satanic crimes that actually occurred were very different than in the trainings or in the media. In actual crimes, the Satanism or cult was not the primary motive. Rather, it was typically secondary, insignificant, or non-existent. So it's like if they did something bad, oh, and they were Satanists. It's almost like when a kid does something bad and they're like, well, they, they played violent video games. Yes. And then it's like, well, that didn't like actually make them go and do that horrible thing that they did. It's yeah, it's just something they did. Most crimes that have satanic involvement are trespassing, vandalism, cruelty to animals, or stealing, which is interesting. Yeah, like it doesn't match. And so simply Lanning says that there appears to be a correlation between teenagers committing these crimes, like those happening, and things that appear to be satanic rituals around them. But it doesn't mean that one caused the other. It doesn't mean that they did those because of the satanic rituals or because of their belief in Satanism. Right. It was there. So we talked about the problems with moral panics, but like there were real people who were hurt by this. And there was also like just we're we're starting off with some companies because I thought they were a little bit humorous that like people like this is what people thought. But there were rumors that McDonald's was working with the Church of Satan. And some even theorized that Ronald Donald himself (laughs) was their earliest victim. So in 1978, McDonald's released a statement because people thought that Ray Kroc, a franchise owner, was a financial supporter of the Church of Satan. More conjecture and claims followed and people stopped going to McDonald's. So what they did was they sent McDonald's executives out to talk to like church clergy and were like, look, (laughs) we're in churches. It's all good. That's hilarious. Also, right? And then people thought that there was like satanic meeting and the Procter & Gamble logo. So they had to set up a phone line for people to call. So like, I'm assuming they had to like, they got to like push a button. It was like, are you calling about a problem issue? Are you calling with a question about ingredients? Are you calling about our Lord and Savior, Satan, devil man? Right? Like, and then you would push three. Uh, and 
It's because the old logo had 13 stars and people thought it was the mark of the devil. And like, oh, no, we talked about that already, too. We did. We did. My favorite people thought Rainbow Bright's birthmark was a pentagram. (laughs) So there was also many court cases where Satanism was used in court. So Reichert and Richardson analyzed trends of Satanism in court and through a LexisNexis search of Satan, Satanic, Satanism... They found the following trends. It's going to go up, right? So in the 1960s, there were eight federal cases, 11 state. In the 1970s, there were 27 federal, 39 state. In the 1980s, there were 56 federal cases and 112 state cases. In the 1990s, there were 116 federal cases and 245 state cases which is interesting because that's from 1990 to 1999, right? And a lot of people say that the satanic panic was teetering out by the early 90s. Clearly not. Right, right. It's over. They were either very busy in the early 90s or that's not true. And then between 2000 and 2009, 58 federal cases and 143 state cases, which, I mean, it doesn't sound like like an, an insane amount of numbers, but like it's a lot when you're talking about something that doesn't exist. Right. When people, when it's brought up, it's not always like, there was satanic ritual abuse. Sometimes it's they did this thing. It can be as simple as that or they believe in Satanism, but wild that it's in so many cases. Yeah, for sure. So here's some notable satanic cases. And you've probably heard of a lot of these. In 1977, Son of Sam Killings. In 1983, Henry Lee Lucas, which we've discussed already, but he said he was guided by satanic beliefs to confess. The majority of those confessions were not real. In 1986, Sean Sellers claimed his killings were motivated by satanic beliefs after he was convicted. 1988, Richard Ramirez marked crime scenes with pentagrams and forced one of his victims to pledge her allegiance to Satan. Okay. We talked about him in our Cecil Hotel episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that feels pretty overt, right? I mean, yeah. And a lot of people do. I I think he's probably the most common one that comes up when you search like serial killers and satanism because of that picture of him in the court yes and then in 1989 allegedly deborah zock and a group of other women tried to kill a man that deborah had lured back to her house apparently they chanted red rum and deborah thought that she was the reincarnation of jack the ripper's mother not even jack the ripper his mother as you probably know red rum is from the shining And it was listed as satanic graffiti. (laughs) There's no evidence that Jack the Ripper was an occultist, although some have speculated that his crimes were sacrificial. Interesting. But could you even imagine, like, someone brings you home, this is what happens? Interesting, but... So ridiculous. Sure. I don't know. I don't even know what to say to that. It's just all over the place in so many ways. Also in the 80s, there's allegations of satanic ritual abuse at the McMartin Family Preschool in California. One mom accused one of the employees of molesting her child. There was then an investigation of the seven employees that went back 20 years. By the time the investigation had concluded, there were 360 kids out of 400 who claimed abuse. The claims from the kids started to get odd. One said that the teachers could fly. Another said that they were made to watch other children be sacrificed, which wouldn't you think that, I don't know, maybe some of the kids actually like would have been gone had they been sacrificed? Yeah, like I think that's what's weirdest to me. Like if you're sacrificed, you are no longer there. You can tell that like 
to me, it sounds a lot like little kids using words that they have heard or have been told. Yeah, yeah. You would think that like daycare aged kids, right? Unless it's like summertime, they'd otherwise be in school. So they'd be very young. And like, they're not going to use the word sacrificed. At least I don't believe a kid would use the word sacrificed. And what's wild is so that there was uh, an institute called the Child's Institute International that was interviewing the children. And although they did not mean to, they ended up being coercive in their interview style. They would say things like, we know what happened. Just tell us. And then if kids said nothing happened, they would be like, oh, you're just too scared to tell us. Yeah, that's not fair. And if you're like, yep, it just tell us the truth and tell us what happened when it was probably just like a typical day at the daycare. Yeah. An adult's recollection of the interviews in 2005 was that he remembered being asked the questions repeatedly and that he caught on quickly about what he was expected to say. So it's like, oh, I could be done if I just say what they want. They have no idea what was going on. Like, they're just like, this adults ask me a lot of things. I could be done with this and go play again, right? Like, I feel like that's how my son would be. Just sure. Other kids admitted to lying and there's never any evidence of abuse found there. The interviewers from McMartin were treated like experts and the interview techniques began being used at other facilities. There was only one person from McMartin who spent significant time in prison and his name was Ray Bucky and he served five years. The charges against him were eventually dismissed, but he lost five years of his life because of it. About 100 other preschools were accused. Wild. And that's a lot. Yeah, like if you think of it, that's a lot of kids that probably were interviewed too. Yeah. The satanic panic started to fizzle after McMartin because it became clear that there was no evidence of ritualistic satanic cults. So one of the articles that we looked at, it was from 2012. And what they talked about was that some courts held that evidence of satanic involvement was sufficient to prove intent or motive in criminal cases. So defendants who appeal because there was wrongly included evidence of satanic involvement were not successful in their appeal. So some courts do recognize how prejudicial that evidence could be and have overturned convictions and ordered new trials where satanic evidence can't be included, right? Because in addition to generally being like there was a satanic ritual like even outside of the satanic panic i think people would be like what do you mean there's a ritual element to this a religious ritual element seems strange but knowing what we know about the satanic panic if a jury were to hear that i would imagine they would just automatically make up their mind right so they would say like is there evidence of them having satanist beliefs or occult beliefs if the answer is yes, then they're guilty. Like, you don't need to prove anything else to me. And I think that is what happened. Right, because they're bad guys always in their head. Exactly, exactly. So there's a few different cases that I think had interesting precedent. So there's a state versus Stensrud. And it's here Jason Stensrud was convicted of second degree murder and first degree mistreatment in relation to the death of his newborn. He appealed this in 2006 and his conviction was overturned and the case was remanded for a new trial because the prosecution did not prove that his belief in Satanism was his motive or his intent to commit the crimes. Rather, they relied on his beliefs alone where they showed no history of harmful acts in relation to his satanic beliefs, which is bizarre, right? They're like, well, you're a Satanist, so you did it, right? Like, not like you're a Satanist. You have showed in the past that you are violent right, in relation to your Satanism. In Clark versus O'Day, the defendant's habeas corpus position was denied because here they bragged about their participation in satanic sacrifices. So clearly this was part of why they did what they did. In Grayson versus State, the defendant was convicted for murder after he had kidnapped a woman and mutilated her body after killing her. 
here, it wasn't that the, he was involved in occultism or satism. It wasn't that there was rituals that were done right here. It was that the satanic element of the ritual was done post-mortem. It was like literally part of the crime itself was like, that's how he mutilated the woman's body. So it's interesting how it's kind of evolved in courts as well, but certainly didn't stop existing. Right. The whole notion of this is wild to me. I feel like it is still considered socially appropriate to discriminate against people who worship Satan. You can not like them because of that. You can make certain assumptions about them because of that. And it seems socially okay, which wild to me, like wild that that's still a thing in 2022. Right. Not to make light of this, Amanda, but I have to know what is on your mixtape that you're going to leave at whatever crime scene that you're in. Oh, gosh. See, I knew I'd forget. Tell me yours. It's a mix. It's a mix. between. It depends on my mood. I don't mean to brag. But look, my brother and I liked Fallout Boy before they were like insanely big. So it would have to be Grand Theft Autumn or Rockstar Boyfriends by Thule. Okay. Both of which made me feel very happy and very excited as a teenager and a youth. Also, and also, obviously, number one on all things, all the time. Three small words from the movie, Josie and the Pussycats, because it's like (laughs) chef's kiss, the best soundtrack that ever existed ever. And I had that haircut for like a decade. That was my scene haircut. Oh, we're learning so much about you today. So much. So much. I love it. I love it. I don't know. Like, so from that time, I feel like my favorites were AFI. My favorite song from them was God Called In Sick Today. And then Motion City Soundtrack will forever be my favorite. And my favorite song from them is Mary Without Sound. Okay. Okay. Which is also not a very popular one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, these are like my two bands that I love that were like out in the world, but I did listen to a lot more like, I don't know, weird stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. I feel like I always listen to a mix, but like those were some of the the constants. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. They were always going. They were always in the favorites that would come up. Yes. Uh, As always, we want to know what would be on your mixtape. We also want you to send us your drawings of Jam Cats. We asked our patrons what would be on their crime scene mixtape with no context. And this is what they said. Hello, Kit here. My song choice for the crime scene mixtape would be Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult. Hey there, my name is Gina. And if I were to pick a song for the mixtape, I would pick Everything Evil by Coed and Cambria. So my two songs for my crime scene mixtape would be Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and Nasty Habits by Oingo Boingo. We also had Three Little Pigs by Green Jelly suggested and Who Can It Be by Men at Work. And also, like, what do you think about this? Did you know all this about the satanic panic? Do you feel like you've learned some things today? Because we were very excited to talk about this. It's so interesting and it's wild that, like, so much happened during this time frame for realistically no reason. (laughs) Like, literally (laughs) no reason, because someone got a bee in their bonnet. Love it. So weird. So, yeah, tell us all the things. Tell us what moral panics you think are out there. Yeah, and there's so many that this relates to. And if you have one that we didn't bring up, feel free to. 
Yeah, we're also, we have at least two episodes planned on cases that were heavily influenced by Satanic Panic. But if there's if there's one that you are particularly fond of or want to want us to talk about, let us know. Or if you're like, hey, I wish you would have talked about this thing with Satanic Panic. Let us know because this isn't a closed book. Like we're going to keep having times where we talk about this because it it really, really influenced I think, how we looked at like violent crimes for a period of time. Very true. Well, with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. Crowleyite. Okay. Jimmy Page, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, was a Crowleyite. 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 Okay. Jimmy Page, the lead singer of... Jimmy Page, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin, was a Crowleyite. Holy fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Was a follower of Crowley. Was a follower of Alistair Crowley. Was a big fan of of Alistair Crowley. That you could... Crowleyite. Was a Crowleyite. Was a Crowleyite. It's there. Was a Crowleyite. Crowleyite. Red leather, yellow leather. Crowleyite. Crowleyite. God fucking damn it. <laughs> can, I, can this be our blooper thing at the end? Crowleyite. 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 I eat. I eat. Crowleyite. Crowleyite. I eat. Fuck. I'm so sorry. It's Zeppelin. Zeppelin makes you say it wrong. They blame that. Yes, it is Lindsay. Uh, okay. <laughs> to go put on my bullet belt around what? my arm. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I feel so defeated. Okay. I can't help it. Stop laughing. <laughs> because now I'm picturing like a crawly nightlight. You know what I mean? <laughs> Stupid. You had a crawly nightlight. That's better. There we go. Sure. Can sure. you make that? Please, thanks. Okay. Don't look at me. <laughs> don't look at me. Yeah, no, I have to. <laughs> Like, I'm going to minimize you. (laughs) 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 I turned off my camera. I thought it would help. (laughs) I still can hear you.